The reading is 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, beginning at verse 18 to 25. Lord, we ask that you open our spiritual eyes and ears as we read and listen to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. This is the word of the Lord. Great, we'll do keep that uh, passage open. We're back in uh, 1 Corinthians this morning. Uh, And if you've uh, just joined us or we went around last week, we are discovering, I think, what it means to be a Christian to be part of uh, God's family, uh, the church. And last time round, we were introduced to this uh, church in Corinth, um, a, a confident, uh, a gifted uh, church that very much, I think, reflected the kind of proud, confident city around it. And I guess if we could be transported 2,000 years back, 2,000 miles away, uh, to one of their weekly gatherings, it would be hard not to have been impressed. Uh, services were, were dynamic, rather than dull. Uh, Preachers uh, appeared spirit-empowered rather than soporific. Indeed, there was a real buzz about the place that made you excited and proud to be part of that church. And Paul began what must have been, I think, a difficult letter by reminding this impressive and and proud church that they were a a called people. It was because God had taken the initiative uh, to call them Uh, into relationship with himself, Uh, he was the one who set them apart uh, through uh, the cross as Jesus took their sin on himself and in exchange gave them his perfect obedience. Indeed, everything they had, everything they'd been given uh, was only because of God's grace, God's undeserved kindness. And God had also called them now to to live out that new life, uh, increasingly reflecting the one who had called them living holy and distinctive lives uh, until that future day when they would finally be with Jesus and be fully like him. But we started to see last week that uh, far from being that distinctive community, uh, holy church, they were increasingly taking their cue uh, uh, from the culture around them, uh, being marked by a, a con- sort of competitive spiritual un- un- one-upmanship that led them to line up behind their favourite preachers and personalities in the hope of looking more spiritually impressive. And this morning, we get to a key part of the letter where we sense 
uh, Paul's real concern for this church. A fear that in their desire to, to impress and to look impressive, they will ditch the very message that had saved them. And we'll need to hear Paul's uh, warnings this morning if we are to resist that same danger of abandoning or, or distancing ourselves from the message that saved us. Well, before we begin, let's, let's pray uh, together. Father, I found this part of your words uh, a challenge to prepare and preach. Uh, please help me to preach it faithfully. Uh, please help each one of us to humbly receive your words so that we might be that church that you want us to be. For our good, we pray this uh, for the salvation of our community and ultimately for your glory. Amen. I was reflecting this week um, and thinking, wouldn't it be great, wouldn't it be great uh, if the Christian message just sounded ever so slightly more convincing? And so when we encountered that sort of sceptical neighbour across the fence, or that cynical uh, mate at school, or that antagonistic uh, sceptic um, in the workplace, all we just had to do was explain the gospel. And they'll go, wow, I'm so impressed. That's brilliant. And by the way, brilliantly explained as well. Uh, where do I sign up? And isn't the case, maybe it's my experience, but on those occasions where I am bold enough to try and explain the gospel I believe to someone who doesn't, even as I'm trying to explain it, uh, as I get, about, get to that bit about the creator hanging on a cross to pay for my sins, even to me, it sounds weak. It sounds feeble, uh, even a bit bonkers. Yes, uh, Jesus, the great teacher or thinker, Jesus, the powerful example, uh, that's more in my comfort zone. But Jesus, the crucified rescuer. Maybe you're here this morning and you wouldn't describe yourself yet as a Christian. Uh, maybe none of your schoolmates are Christians and they would get a real kick out of the fact that you're here this morning in church and perhaps to you, the message you've been hearing week by week just sounds unimpressive. Uh, just like the people at church are unimpressive. Uh, just like the preacher you're about to listen to for the next little while it seems unimpressive. Well, we're going to dot around our passage a bit this morning, but here's the first thing I want us to see. The message of the cross, it's foolish and unimpressive to a perishing world. See, Paul's not surprised, is he, by the reactions of people uh, that he's been preaching the message to. Verse 18, uh, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And then look down to verse 21, he speaks about the foolishness of what was preached. Paul's under no illusions. People who are not Christians often think that the gospel, the message of the cross, sounds silly. It certainly doesn't match does it, the expectations of what a powerful message should sound like. And if we are Christians, that explains why often when we explain it, we can feel awkward. Uh, we sense it does sound weird and silly at times. And Paul says it does. And then Paul goes on to show two types of reaction to the message he preached that he was very used to. So first, many Jews of Paul's day were simply unimpressed. 
they expected a truly uh, powerful message would be accompanied uh, with powerful and impressive signs and miracles. But just a message, one about God humbling himself and hanging on a cross, well, that just wasn't impressive. In fact, the Jews, it was ridiculous, even scandalous. But the Greek world was just as unimpressed as the Jewish world. The mess of the cross didn't fit in with their own highly sophisticated uh, uh, systems of thinking. It didn't square with the eloquent teaching of their world-class philosophers and impressive thinkers. Uh, when I was a, a student, um, I had a very good friend at university who himself was Greek uh, and rather fancied himself as a bit of a philosopher, I think. And a few weeks after we met, I got a chance to share what I believed about Jesus and the cross. And his verdict was very clear. He wasn't wowed. Indeed, he declared that the whole idea of the cross was, in his own words, simplistic and unsophisticated. No, he told me he was looking for something far more impressive and articulate than the message I had tried to explain to him uh, had been. I was disappointed. Part of me felt a bit of a failure as well. Perhaps I could have explained it better, even in a more articulate and erudite way. Maybe I should have mentioned a few theologians and sort of philosophers to impress him. And part of me did feel humiliated. I still remember that kind of incredulous expression on his face, that dismissive tone that only not only declared that the message I had proclaimed was beneath him, but it implied that I was a fool for believing it, a fool for being captivated by it. After all, how could such a ridiculous and feeble message provide answers to the really big questions of life, he said. But notice, secondly, if Paul's message of a crucified Christ seems weak and unimpressive, so too was the preacher who delivered it. He was equally unimpressive. And here I think we need to remember the uh, context in which Paul was writing. Uh, public speakers in Paul's day were the, uh, held in the highest regard. They were kind of given rock star status and celebrity. In fact, a powerful and impressive speaker could expect to earn a shed load of money and rapidly climb the ladder to fame and fortune. And in many cases, the message became secondary. These speakers were full of tricks and techniques, but often the casualty was content and truth. Paul's influence in the world has been enormous. Uh, 2,000 years since he lived, his writing still has an impact. But it's not because he was an impressive speaker. Indeed, look back at verse 17, just before our passage. He acknowledges that his preaching was not delivered with great eloquence of the kind of impressive wisdom that pleased and flattered the wise. And just look on to the end of chapter, to the start of chapter 2 where we see Paul repeating that claim, reminding the, the Corinthians that when he first preached the gospel to them on his second missionary journey, he came in in weakness, in fear and trembling, not with the swagger of self-assurance. And his preaching was not with clever or persuasive words. In other words, a message that seemed weak was delivered by a man who seemed just as weak and unimpressive. Well, maybe uh, public speaking wasn't Paul's thing. Perhaps there were others around who were more impressive and persuasive. Perhaps that's why Apollos and Cephas got a following, because uh, the church at Corinth thought they were easier on the ear and more eloquent than Paul. 
But I don't think Paul was a poor speaker. In fact, Paul tells us that his weak and unimpressive delivery was deliberate. Look down at chapter 2, verse 2. Do you see how Paul intentionally renounces uh, the kind of eloquence that would have impressed many of his hearers? He chooses to turn his back on the methods of the traveling public speakers and rhetoricians. Instead, he delivers this unimpressive message of a crucified saviour in a way that sounded weak and unimpressive. Well, Paul's unimpressive delivery clearly didn't impress many in the crowds that gathered to listen. In fact, just before Paul came to Corinth, uh, that first time he'd been in Athens and in a world-class debating chamber of the Areopagus. And as Paul faithfully delivered his message, most of the audience were scathing. They called Paul a babbler. They were scathing about the message and the messenger. Well, to be honest, part of me would kill to sound impressive and persuasive, to have powerful gifts of speaking. And yet Paul deliberately goes out of his way to sound the opposite. And before we're finished, I think we'll see why. So an unimpressive message, an unimpressive messenger, but third, notice too, an unimpressive church. Look down at chapter 1, verse 26. And even as I read this, it's hard not to smile as you think about this letter being read out for the first time in this very proud church in Corinth. Paul writes, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Uh, Not many of noble birth or from great stock. Indeed, you are proof that God chooses the foolish things of the world. God chooses the weak things of the world. Verse 28, he chooses the lowly things and the despised things, the things that are not, the nothings. That's what the Corinthian church was full of, full of foolish, lowly, weak, nothings and nobodies. Well, for a church that was rather impressed with itself and thought it was going places, I'd say I'd love to have been a fly on the wall as these words were first read out and digested. Not many. Very few wise, noble, sophisticated, impressive people have believed Paul's message and become part of the church in Corinth. Notice Paul doesn't say not any wise, but not many wise. That's quite important. Uh, One of Charles Wesley's friends, the, the wealthy Countess of Huntingdon, used to say that she was saved by the letter M. And even in the Corinthian church, there would have been a smattering, I guess, of the wealthy, Uh, Those who were highly educated, the beautiful people, we could call them. But Paul implies they were the exception rather than the rule. Well, going back to my Greek friends, uh, immediately following uh, that very difficult conversation we had, we headed off to get some food. And out of the blue, at Leicester Square tube station, we bumped into probably the only cool couple uh, from my church. She was stunning. She's about six foot two, uh, a model. Um, Her husband, a hotshot lawyer. Uh, who didn't look out of place on her arm. We did a few sort of fist bumps and, you know, the cool things you do. Um, And I remember as they disappeared down a tunnel, my friend turned to me and said, who were they? And as casually as I could, I said, just some friends from church. And how I enjoyed that moment, probably more than I should have done. 
But here's the thing. Notice Paul doesn't just say that the Corinthian church was full of very underwhelming and very average people. In verses 27 and 28, he makes it clear that if the Christian church is largely an unimpressive operation, with just the odd exception, it's not, a, it's not an accident, but reflects God's own selection strategy. And one that hasn't changed for 2,000 years, looking around the room. Do you see from our passage, the reason why there are not more big shots in the church is that God actually has gone out of his way to, to pick the nothings. The uneducated, the insignificant, the poor, uh, the downwardly mobile. And once we pick ourselves off the floor from that, I guess the question we need to ask is why? Why isn't the Christian church more like the, the church of Scientology? I mean, it'd be great, wouldn't it, to have John Travolta as one of your kind of, you know, warm-up acts on a Sunday? Or Tom Cruise? Well, if those God has called are largely unimpressive, I think we'll see why before we're done. An unimpressive message, an unimpressive messenger, an unimpressive recipients of that message. So why should we believe? Why should we hold on to this message and still continue to proclaim it? Why not just make the cross a little bit less prominent, perhaps take away some of the offence of the gospel, and make the Christian faith a bit more impressive and plausible? Well, Paul does give us an answer, doesn't he, in our, in our passage. You see, although humanly this message is a weak message of a crucified saviour, it is in fact powerful. And the reality is, unlike any other human idea and philosophy or faith, it is a message that actually saves perishing people. Indeed, anyone who's ever lived and ends up knowing God and enjoying his heaven will only do so through this message of a crucified saviour. And so this message is powerful. In fact, Paul says it can save anyone who believes. That's how powerful it is. Again, look at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, to the world's eyes, the cross looks very weak. But to those who are being saved, says Paul, it is God's power. And then look down at verse 23. We preach Christ crucified. Yes, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than all human strength. To many, the message may seem childish, it may seem unsophisticated, but to those that have been called and received this message, it is, isn't it, the wisdom of God that trumps all human ideas and puts all human wisdom in its place. Well, last week we saw, didn't we, a church dividing up around favourite leaders and preachers. And Paul says, Guys, do you realize how wrong you've got it? The world doesn't divide into these different groups or around personalities. It divides in just the two groups. Those who think the gospel is stupid and foolish and those who think it's wise. Uh, those who think it's unimpressive and weak and those who think it's powerful. And perhaps most starkly, those who are perishing as they ignore this message and those who are being saved through it. You see, in a, world, says Paul, in, a, in a world, says Paul, where there are people who are perishing, 
where all of us will die under the judgment of God for ignoring him and rejecting him, it's only through this weak and foolish message that we can be rescued and saved. Do you notice how how Paul drives that point home in verse 20? He says, when you look at all the, the wisest ideas of the world, the great philosophers, the great thinkers, they are utterly useless when it comes to to saving the dying and perishing. Indeed, the so-called wisdom is utterly annihilated by the apparent foolishness of the cross. I was thinking, I suppose God could could have made his rescue mission uh, look and seem a lot more impressive. Uh, To the spiritually drowning, he could have sent an impressive flotilla, couldn't he, of of naval ships instead of the feeble-looking inflatable rescue, rescue dinghy. But God deliberately chose something that didn't look impressive, that did look weak and foolish. And in verse 19, quoting Isaiah, Paul tells us why. Go down at verse 19. God is determined, says Paul, to destroy the wisdom of the wise, to frustrate the intelligence of the intelligent. See, God's way of doing things never flatters our pride. His way of working through the cross uh, shatters, doesn't it, all human arrogance and pretensions. It removes any room, doesn't it, for human boasting and puts God rightly at centre stage. So Paul could look round, couldn't he, in the church of Christ and say, where is the wise man? Where's the scribe, the brilliant debater? See, because God's way of saving people didn't flatter those who thought they were wise, Uh, Most of them just turned their noses up and walked away, a bit like my friends. And I've met many people over the years uh, who've shown interest, perhaps in exploring Christianity, and have put God, as it were, in the dock to see whether he can match up to their lofty ideas and wisdom. But Paul says here, don't you realise, don't you realise it's the other way around. God's not in your courtroom, but you're in his. And if you're going to be saved, if you don't want to perish then you need to humble yourself and trust the message of a king who died on a cross to save you. And if that isn't humbling enough, one of the results of doing just that is you get to join at the ranks of the weak and the clueless and the not very impressive the Bible calls at the church. Just a few implications as we uh, draw to a close. I hope and I guess that most of us here this morning are very glad that we don't need an IQ of 130 to grasp this message that saves the perishing. God has set, hasn't he, the bar astonishingly low. In fact, we discover it's not a bar that we have to climb over. Rather, it's a bar we have to stoop under as we humbly receive everything that we need from a dying, crucified saviour. And to us, isn't the foolishness of God so much wiser than our wisdom as it means that no one is beyond God's saving, his rescue? See, no one better complain at the last day that God had made the message too complicated, uh, beyond their reach. No, it's a life-saving message that even a child can grasp and understand. But it is a message that is received humbly, A message designed not to make us look impressive and to flatter our egos, but rightly to make God look great, to ensure the honour and the glory goes to him. So this morning, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you're still considering the claims of Jesus, I'm glad you're here. 
But if you're looking for something that sounds impressive, something that will make you look impressive, Paul warns you that you're going to be disappointed. And worst of all, you will miss out on the only thing in this world that's powerful enough, that's wise enough to save you from perishing. Uh, Second, if Paul says that the message is best communicated by weak and unimpressive methods and by weak and unimpressive people, then just as the gospel is truly for all of us, then so is that job to, to share it. A job for all of us who've believed it. Sometimes I think, if I could just point our friends, or my friends, uh, to some very impressive Christians, or if I could look more impressive, then that would be job done. Or if we were more eloquent or yeah, impressive, that would help. But Paul says the message is best preached by those who feel weak, who speak not with a, a swagger, but who tremble. Who don't look together or impressive, but look weak in the world's eyes. Later in the next letter, Paul will say to the Corinthians that we are given this message which is precious and powerful uh, in jars of clay. We are like jars of clay to make sure that everyone sees that the power is in the message and not the messenger. Part of me is very glad about that. Remarkably, God wants to use me to use us in his purposes to showcase this message, which is indeed powerful, and is treasure. But part of me also gets that this week, uh, I might find myself in a conversation with a neighbor, maybe, or a mate, and I have to be prepared to look weak and unimpressive, even silly, if I'm going to preach this message that Paul says saves the perishing. And Paul said, I think, just as pride can stop people coming to faith in this message, he also knows that pride, wanting to look impressive, might stop us from declaring that message or tempt us to, to shift away from this message. Paul knows that there's a danger for the Corinthians, and God knows that's a danger for us. That's why he ensured that Paul's words are included in his word to us this morning. Well, my prayer for myself Uh, my prayer for us is that we would be so thankful, so proud of this message about Jesus, about a dying king on a cross, that we might gladly boast about that. Yes, when we're among people who believe it on a Sunday, but also when we're around those who don't get it and might mock us and mock it. Let's pray. Paul says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God, it is the wisdom of God. Father, I pray that you'd help us to know that as we trust that message this week. And Father, give us that humility and grace, but also that confidence to proclaim that message of a powerful saviour dying on a cross. Lord, thank you that you do use a weak people. And I pray, Lord, even this week, that we would have that courage, uh, that trust in that message to proclaim it uh, for your glory and for the growth of your kingdom. Amen.